From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, comic, writer, and actor Sarah Silverman. She's known for breaking taboos in her comedy. Silverman wrote about the most humiliating aspect of her childhood in her memoir, The Bedwetter. Wetting the bed was especially awful during sleepovers and at sleepaway camp. Now The Bedwetter has been adapted into an off-Broadway musical. Also, poet Diana Getch talks about transitioning to life as a woman relatively late in life, when she was nearly 50. Her new memoir, This Body I Wore, is about what it was like coming of age and into adulthood in an era when she didn't have the language or knowledge to understand what it meant to be trans. Later, Maureen Corrigan recommends some novels and mysteries for early summer reading. My first guest is comic, actor, and writer Sarah Silverman, who's known for breaking taboos, often to mock sexism, racism, and extremist religion and politics. She now has second thoughts about some of her earlier comedy, wondering whether when she was trying to mock racism, she didn't understand her own limited perspective as a white person. We'll talk about that later. Silverman has broken a big personal taboo from her childhood. She was a bedwetter. It was a nightly occurrence until about the age of 16. It was especially humiliating during sleepovers with friends and the summers she spent at sleepaway camp. She wrote about that in her 2010 memoir titled The Bedwetter. Now that book has been adapted into an off-Broadway musical. She collaborated on it with songwriter Adam Schlesinger, who co-founded the band Fountains of Wayne, wrote the title song for the movie That Thing You Do, the songs for the rom-com Music and Lyrics, and the TV series Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and what may be the best song that ever opened the Tony Awards ceremony, Broadway, It's Not Just for Gays Anymore. He was one of the very early COVID victims and died April 1st, 2020. The songwriter David Yazbek completed writing the songs. The Bedwetter officially opens June 7th at the Atlantic Theatre Company in Manhattan. Sarah Silverman, welcome back to Fresh Air. I've really been looking forward to talking with you again. Um, You were on our show in 2010 after the Bedwetter memoir was published. So congratulations That's right. on That's right. Yeah, congratulations on adapting the most humiliating experience of your life into a musical. <laughs> Thank um, you. Oh yeah. Um, so what was the turning point when you decided to make this really hidden part of your life something that you talked about on stage and wrote about? The shame started officially subsiding when I was Um, young, I just was sure it would be my deepest, darkest shame and, you know, my biggest secret. And um, when I was around 10, I was in my bedroom and I had a little color TV and my mom came upstairs. I had, my room was in the attic. And she said, um, ooh, turn on Johnny Carson, this actress that's on. She was promoting a, a mini series called V. And she said, um, she used to be Miss New Hampshire. So we watched it together and I couldn't believe it. You know, she said it very cavalierly, like it was nothing that she was, used to be a bedwetter. And it just blew my mind, you know, that um, someone else with this problem would be so casual about it and and say it on national television. And it just kind of... um, it blew out a wall in my brain a little bit, you know, where I I saw the world a little differently and I thought, oh gosh, you know, maybe I, I could um, 
get past this. So now The Bedwetter is a musical, and Adam Schlesinger was writing the songs, but, you know, really, sadly, he died um, before the show was completed on April 1st of 2020. In the early days of COVID, when, I mean, COVID was terrifying. There was no treatments. There was virtually no testing that you could get. It, It was, this was probably during the period when bodies were piling up in freezer trucks on the streets of Manhattan. I mean, it's just terrifying. Right around the the beginning of that, um, I had come to New York for three months for the, to rehearse and put up the show. You know, the show was completed um, to that point where we were going into rehearsals and previews. But of course, there's always so much to change and songs you cut and songs you add and, yeah, he, he. I remember he had finally gotten his hands on a test like five days into having this like 104 fever and then never got results, just never heard back. <laughs> you know, like there was just nothing really available and we knew so little and and then he was in the hospital. You know, then he texted, I'm in the, can you believe it? I'm in the hospital with actual COVID, you know, and, and it felt so... It was scary, but because he was texting us, it just felt like, okay, well, you know. And then the texting stopped, and we started just getting emails from his girlfriend, Alexis. And, um, and then that was, that was it, April 1st. It just, it was so shocking and um, surreal. And uh, it, it still doesn't really feel real other than this show is, is finally on. And... Um, you know, he's everywhere in it. And, uh, yeah, it's his family came to it and, and they didn't know how they would feel. And I think it was very life of, you know, it was cathartic for them. They ended up really loving it. But it's, you know, of course, it's just, you know, a parent doesn't want to have to see some a posthumous work by their son. But it was... Um, yeah, it's been really surreal, and uh, and David Yazbek's been a mensch to come in and kind of uh, doula the rest of this, you know, into uh, being, and um, a very selfless, beautiful act by him, just kind of seeing it through, and he's been incredible. Are some of Adam Schlesinger's songs still in it? Like, how many of the songs are ones that he was able to complete before he... Oh, most of them, most of them. Sarah, this may be asking too much, but we don't have any of the songs. They haven't been recorded, at least not for any kind of no. public use. Could you sing a few bars of one of the songs? Oh, that, my gosh. Do you, I mean, you have a Let's great voice, that. so I, I know you could pull it off, because I'd love to hear some of the music, and I know our listeners would, too. Oh, my Terry. Okay, I... Uh. Let's well. One that I love is um, Sarah makes some friends. You know, this is about my life when I was ten. So it's just a little tiny ten-year-old girl playing me, and um, she makes some new friends and she brings them home, and she introduces them to her dad, Donald, who owns a discount clothing store called Crazy Donnie's Factory Outlet. And uh, she introduces her friends to him, and he seems to know all their moms. And finally, one of them says, how do you know all our moms? And he starts to sing. Um, In my line of work, women's fashion retail, I need to know my customer right 
to the last detail. What does she want? What does she desire? Then I can position myself as her supplier. So when your mother showed up at the door of my store and said she needed pants, well, I could sense she meant more. So I put her at ease with my expertise until I could see she was relaxed and calm. And by then, some sets have closed uh, in front of the girls. So it's just him on stage. And then he continues. So I closed a little early and I your mom. <laughs> wow. Here's a little sample. Oh, my yeah, goodness. But that's really funny. It's so, it's just so well. It's very, very funny. There's, um, and then just heartbreaking, beautiful songs. A lot of really funny songs. Um, I, I'm not doing them justice, singing them for you in my phone. Can, let me just stop you for a second, though. So did your father actually have um, intimate relationships with his customers, like, like the father in the show? It's an exaggeration, but yes. You know, um, I'm wondering as a comic what it's been like for you. I don't know if you've done stand-up lately, but you've certainly done a lot of stand-up over the years. Seeing Chris Rock slapped really hard on stage by Will Smith, and then not long after seeing Dave Chappelle like pushed on stage by somebody in the audience who, 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 who you know, just ran onto the stage and had to be like dragged off of it. I mean, these, this is dangerous. So what does it make you think about as, as a comic, and especially as a woman comic, who I think, like, because comedy was always such, like, a male-dominated field, and it was mostly, like, guys at the comedy clubs for so long, um, that women felt especially out of place, and often that a lot of the audience didn't get it, because it had been so male-dominated in the past. Right. I mean, I think we, as an entire people, like, forgot that there are more women than men in this world. <laughs> you know, like, I remember being told, like, not to talk about sp things that are specific to women on stage because it's the men that laugh and the women only laugh if the men are laughing. So you have to appeal to them, which is, you know, that was, uh, let's see, you know, 1990. But um, I, I took that on for a while. I mean, it's just bizarre. Not very long, but... The whole Chris Rock thing and the Chappelle thing, it, I feel like it's indicative of um, this move we've made as a society where we expect more from our comedians than our representatives. Oh, that's an interesting way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Though I'm sure the representatives are getting all kinds of death threats. Sure, but so do comics. Well, oh, that's true. Yeah, that's right. But that it wasn't always that way, was it? I mean, like, were comics getting death threats when you started in comedy? Uh, no. But before that, I'm sure, I think um, Lenny Bruce probably did. Um, but there was also less, there wasn't, certainly there was not social media, and there wasn't, it was just like letters or maybe phone calls, so you don't, don't really understand the scope of... Uh, <laughs> insane people, you know. Um, comedians draw a certain pathology that where people think they know you. And so I think it's all been kind of compounded lately, you know, where you can find something a comedian said publicly, you know, 12 years ago and kind of litigate that on social media when 
we've all been growing and changing and, and learning and, and understanding the people around us more in large part due to social media and, and having a farther reach and have, making the world smaller in that way. Let's take a short break here, and then we could talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is comic, actor, and writer Sarah Silverman, and her 2010 memoir, The Bedwetter, is now adapted into an off-Broadway musical. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my interview with comic, actor, and writer Sarah Silverman. Her 2010 memoir, The Bedwetter, about the most humiliating part of her childhood, wetting the bed every night, has been adapted into a new off-Broadway musical. Sarah Silverman starred in her shows The Sarah Silverman Program and I Love You America and was featured in the series Masters of Sex. Well, you've reflected on your comedy from the past, and you have, like, mixed feelings about some of it, like... Some of the things, some of the comedy you've done in the past, you feel bad about now. You feel like you didn't quite get it, that you made assumptions about the kind of comedy you, you could do as a white liberal, but maybe you made the wrong assumptions and that you were just living in a bubble. But I want, I want to play something that you said on your series, I Love You, America. And this was a monologue on your show. And you were talking about blind spots that you had when you were making jokes and this, you particularly apologize for having worn blackface on one of the episodes of the Sarah Silverman program, which was your Comedy Central sitcom in which your character was named Sarah. And your character was always like saying and doing the wrong things. So um, let's play that excerpt from I Love You, America. As a white person, I have only had to see the world through the lens of the white experience. People of color, in addition to their own perspective, have had to see the world through the lens of white people their whole lives in order to survive, to get jobs, to succeed, to exist. I've never had to see the world through the black experience, though as a liberal, I was sure that I had. <laughs> There was an episode of my old show, The Sarah Silverman Program, that... Oh, my God. Thank you for looking at the applause sign. <laughs> anyway, I had a moment on my old show where I could not see past the, the scope of my liberal white lens. And look, comedy isn't evergreen. It gets old or trite or irrelevant as fast as the changing times. Um, obviously, except for Garfield. I mean, come on. The way that cat at once loves lasagna and hates Mondays. It's genius. It's timeless. And look, there's stuff I did on the Sarah Silverman program that I love. I loved playing this, this arrogant, ignorant ass. But then there's stuff that I did on there that, you know, I cringe at. And uh, one thing in particular is to call it problematic would be too kind. Um, okay, I'll just rip the Band-Aid off right now and say it. I did an episode where I wore blackface. The context was, uh, well, irrelevant because it's not okay to do blackface ever. But slash and, there is irony because in this episode, I played an ignorant woman in a liberal bubble who thought she was illuminating racism by wearing blackface. What I didn't realize then is that in reality, I was an ignorant woman in a liberal bubble who thought I was illuminating racism by wearing blackface. I mean, good grief. That is some real liberal bubble shit. We know it's wrong, so we can do it. 
So that was Sarah Silverman on her series, I Love You, America. Sarah, when did you have that realization that some of the things you did, you wanted to kind of retract, that you thought, looking back on it, that they were uh, wrong? I think as I was growing and changing and seeing more of the black experience through black voices. And, you know, I hadn't gotten into trouble. I, nobody had exposed it at that point. I exposed it myself. And um, it was something that I think is important to do because I want to be able to prove to myself and, and show to others that you can't change your past, but you can be changed by your past. And, you know, even at that time, I thought I was being subversive and, you know, making the, a point, but um, it's, it certainly doesn't hold up in any way. And what I was able to learn from it, I was able to use in what I was doing at in that moment. I mean, listen, there's... Even just in comedy, you have to change with the times and grow or else you become a caricature of yourself or, a, or a, just a signifier of a time. And um, not only is that no way to create art or be a comedian, but it's no way to live. And I just think it's got to be okay to mess up in life and to acknowledge it and notice it and be changed by it. Well, I, first of all, I want to say, I thought this Sarah Silverman program was really funny. Ditto with Jesus's Magic, which was um, a comic film that you did of of your show, and um, I thought the kind of jujitsu comedy that you did was really funny when you played a white liberal, but also mocked that person for not really getting it. Um, it was this kind of like double layer. And I remember in one of my intros, because you've been on our show several times, in one of the intros I said, if you hear Sarah Silverman's comedy, you might think that she's, you know, racist or or sexist. But if you listen closely, you're realizing, no, she's mocking that. She's mocking people who are racist. She's mocking people who are sexist. And I had always thought that that was really successful that you did that in a very successful way. So I was really interested in, when, in hearing that you didn't think, you know, in retrospect, you don't think that it was successful. I think it was successful. I, I, I got successful from it, you know. That's how I know it was successful. But in that time, it worked. I mean, listen, all that stuff had to go through several filters, which were also probably um, white people, you know. Um, but it, it was on the air and it was in, you know, and so it's really just looking at it through the scope of the moment that makes me cringe. But I've also always felt like if you don't look at what you did in the past and cringe, <laughs> you, you haven't grown much, you know. Well, I really appreciate that you are so reflective about your own comedy. Can I ask you for an example of something that you were referring to from your early years where you were saying something because you meant the opposite, but it could be taken out of context and people would think you really mean it? Um, I don't see color. To me, everybody's white. <laughs> that, that's really funny. Do you still feel good about that? 
Yes, I mean, I think, you know, I didn't know the word white privilege, but certainly that was what I was exploring in a lot of my comedy early on that other people described as like, she's playing a Jewish American princess, which never popped into my head and was never my experience growing up in New Hampshire. I'm not, you know, uh, you know, but, um, but that's how it was perceived, I think, by people. But to me, it was really exploring what I didn't know what was called white privilege. So, uh, you know, part of your memoir, The Bedwetter, which is now an off-Broadway play, was about um, depression and uh, how your mother was so depressed during some of your childhood that um, she stayed in bed, uh, as I think she does in the in the show. And then you've been on antidepressants that have really been helpful. But in 2016, you had an abscess on your windpipe and had to have emergency surgery, and you were taking off your antidepressants, um, I'm not sure why, if that was a, a mistake or intentional, but anyways, you went into what's been described as chemically induced suicidal thinking. Um, and that, that must have just been horrible. Like, you really have to taper off of antidepressants. And if my experience is a common experience, it, it's really dangerous. You know, I mean, listen, these doctors saved my life. I, uh, I had this abscess and I had no idea and I was uh, moments away from it bursting without realizing it. So I had a, a very dangerous surgery and, um, but I survived, so then it was fine. But I, they, my blood pressure's very low, so they weren't able to completely put me under. So what they did was just give me, just snow me with opioids, you know, and I just, I have no kind of visual memory of it. I was totally out of it, you know. Um, I, th I guess my eyes were open, but I have no recollection. And I've been on Zoloft since 1994, and it really works very well for me. And you really can't take someone off of that cold turkey. It's dangerous, but they did. So I got out of the hospital after eight days, not realizing I had not been taking my medication for a week and um, I was also on a lot of medication um, that makes you uh, kind of emotionally unstable and was going through withdrawals from eight days of basically having like all the heroin in the world in my body you know it's just all morphine and uh, Dilaudid and whatever they pump into me um, to not feel anything so I was I mean, if it wasn't for my boyfriend at the time, I would have jumped off the the roof of my building. That's all I could think about doing. I, everything was too heartbreaking or too beautiful for for a few days there. And um, and my sister finally said they they ha did not give you any of your Zoloft. And just knowing that, and I took like three right away to start getting it into my body, and and it you know just it helped. It helped me, it's, you know, get back on track. Well, I'm glad you, you are past that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, Sarah, it's been great to talk with you again. Um, it's been a few years, so I'm really glad we had this chance again and that it's for such a, a kind of happy occasion. Yes, me too. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you, Terry. Sarah Silverman's new musical, The Bedwetter, is adapted from her 2010 memoir of the same name, the Bedwetter officially opens June 7th at the Atlantic Theatre Company in Manhattan. 
Our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, has been diving into lighter literary novels and mysteries, searching for books suited for the beginning of summer. Here's some of her picks. My sense of time is fuzzier thanks to the pandemic, so this could be a late spring or an early summer roundup. The one thing I know for sure is that this mixed bag of terrific books is one I'd want to carry with me any time. Emma Straub's new novel, This Time Tomorrow, is a time travel fantasy imbued with her signature awareness of the infinite ways we humans make life harder for ourselves. Straub's heroine here is a single woman named Alice who works at her old high school. Her father, a best-selling novelist who raised Alice on his own, is dying in a New York hospital. That ordeal, coupled with Alice's approaching 40th birthday, plunges her into despondency. Straub writes that, Alice had always thought of her professional life in perfect contrast with her father's. He'd had wild success, and she none, just hanging on to something stable, like a seahorse with its tail looped around some seagrass. On the night of her birthday, Alice returns from a drunken binge and stumbles into the gift of time travel, which allows her to explore the big question, what if? The greatest compliment I can pay to this time tomorrow is to say that I'd always considered Jack Finney's 1970 novel, Time and Again, to be the New York City time travel tale. Now Finney's classic has company. For anyone who's ever served on a committee, Michelle Hunovan's comic novel, Search, is a delicious, recipe-laden must-read. Hunovan's narrator, Dana Patowski, is a food writer living in California who's roped into joining the search committee for the new minister of her Unitarian Universalist church. Hunovan dramatizes how one strong personality, in this case, a young woman swollen with insolence, can control a committee. And her descriptions of conducting first-round interviews over Zoom are hilarious. Here's Dana describing an interview with a female candidate that turns disastrous. Just before she signed off, she offered to sing us a song. Plucking a dulcimer off the wall, she started in on Bridge Over Troubled Water. She began to keep time by slapping the dulcimer, and somehow each slap was a sharp, direct crack to our eardrums. At the end, she smiled ecstatically and waved. Group decisions are not something Harry Ingram worries about. He's the star of a new hard-boiled mystery called One Shot Harry by veteran crime writer Gary Phillips. The novel is set in L.A. in 1963 as racial tensions are escalating in advance of Martin Luther King's upcoming Freedom Rally at Wrigley Field. Harry is the best of all possible guides to this watershed moment. He's a black freelance news photographer who roams all over L.A. with his speed graphic camera. 
It's a job that gives him entree into neighborhoods and events that might otherwise be off limits to him because of his race. In the course of investigating a friend's suspicious death, Harry finds himself facing off with a white supremacist group who wants the speedometer of racial progress pushed way back down. What makes one-shot Harry a standout is the cityscape of mid-century L.A. it summons up. It's music, chromium cars, hateful slurs, invisible racial boundaries, and cautious hopes. The circumstances of this last recommendation are unusual. Dick Lopez, who wrote under the pen name Richard Stevenson, was a groundbreaking author of gay detective novels featuring Private Eye Donald Strachey. Decades ago, I reviewed one of those Strachey books, and Dick and I became fast friends. He died in March, but one of the things he left behind was the first novel in what would have been a new series about a gay private eye in 1940s Philadelphia. Knock Off the Hat may be the best novel Dick ever wrote. Its main character, Clifford Waterman, is a former police detective dishonorably discharged from the army during World War II for an indecent act. Cliff gets drawn into helping a man who's nabbed in a raid on a so-called degenerates club. As with one-shot Harry, the greatest pleasures here are the details that make 1940s Philly come alive. The horn and hard art automat meals of meatloaf and coconut cream pie. The network of Cliff's closeted friends working in town at Wanamaker's shoe department or even on the police force. I wish I could say there'd be more Waterman novels to come. But the fact that Dick was in his early 80s when he wrote this novel, well, maybe that's a reason to believe in springtime possibilities no matter the season. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. Coming up, poet Diana Getch talks about her decision to transition to life as a woman when she was nearly 50. Her new memoir is called This Body I Wore. This is Fresh Air Weekend. In 2015, my next guest wrote, My life broke down two years ago at age 50, though it was broken all along. I seemed to be a well-functioning man named Douglas Getch, a teacher who taught at Stuyvesant High School and various universities, a poet with award-winning collections, a dedicated meditation practitioner and instructor. Previously, I'd been a concert jazz dancer, a restaurant cook, a varsity athlete. At the same time, I was depressed and had been for decades, with no family, no partner, going through life alone. One other thing, I longed daily to be a woman. That's my guest, Diana Getch, reading from her blog, Life in Transition, that she kept during her period transitioning to life as a woman. The blog was published on the American Scholar site. Now Getch has a new memoir called This Body I Wore, about what it was like coming of age and into adulthood in an earlier era when she didn't have the language or knowledge to understand what it meant to be trans. Getch also writes about her decision to transition relatively late in life. 
She taught English at Stuyvesant High School in New York for 14 years, then spent six years running a creative writing program for incarcerated youth in the Bronx. She's received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the New York Foundation for the Arts, and was the Grace Paley Teaching Fellow at the New School in New York. Diana Getch, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you, Terry. I'm delighted to be here. Delighted to have you. Since you are a poet and you've taught writing just about your entire adult life, let's start with language. As you tried to make sense of your identity and your gender identity and sexual orientation, um, what was language like for you before we had the words today, like gender nonconforming or queer or transsexual, like what words did you have access to that could help you describe who you were and what were the words that other people used to describe who they thought you were? Um, Most of the words we had from today's perspective were fairly laced in shame. Even back then, they felt shameful to refer to ourselves. I mean, as a poet, you know, talking to people I knew who were cross-dressers who were out, you know, on a Friday or a Saturday night, um, I cringed a little at the language we were using. Maybe they didn't, but I did as a poet. I knew that they were, you know, rough approximations. So people said um, transsexual, but we said TS. And then we said TV, like, you know, transvestite or or CD. Or, you know, we tried to create lingo Maybe the most embarrassing one was GG for genetic girl. I mean, what was this, junior high? (laughs) You know, there were whole, you know, menus of terms that we used, and none of them felt accurate. But it also was reflective of our reality. So, you know, we could only see so much or express so much, depending on what pocket of, you know, um, trans culture we were in. Even the word trans culture... You know, that would have been ridiculous to even say that. Even community sounded ridiculous. Why did that sound ridiculous? There was no community, um, you know, in my pocket of trans culture. So, you know, I started to go out cross-dressed in the mid-1980s in New York City. And um, you just sort of found uh, some speakeasy, some corner of a bar that was used one night a week or... You know all these different places that we would we would just pop up, and um, you'd you'd get there in some you know some protected way. You'd be relieved just to arrive and be s- relatively safe. And most of these people identified as straight men, who you know didn't understand why they needed to do this. But there were other pockets of what we would now call trans culture that had a very different experience. These were earlier people who had transitioned already. Um, you know, people who were more woven into uh, gay culture, um, you know, so-called street queens, um, you know, other people who are early transitioners who were kind of out. And they had a kind of family that you would see in ballroom culture and things like that, you know, alternative family, and they were forming communities. Early on, when you would go to, um, like, underground bars and you were able to cross-dress, You'd wear things like pantyhose. Um, and, you know, like your author photo in your new memoir, you're wearing a denim jacket. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm just curious there about what you saw as female or feminine that you aspired to 
back then and what you're comfortable in now expressing yourself. That's a great, that's another great issue. Um, you know, clothes, you know, for me, even even growing up as a child, we're, we're like the only gateway in my childhood mythology of what would what would get me to who I wanted to be. Even though I didn't even use that language, I just saw female clothes as these talismans, these um, devices that made girls female. And I needed a mythology of what would make a person female because deep down I needed something to make me female. And so the clothes, um, you know, before I transitioned had this power and then that power transformed, uh, you know, when I came out and when I transitioned and I'm going to live this way. And, um, uh, you know, I didn't need to worry as much about feminizing. Um, and the other thing that happened with clothes, you know, when you go out cross-dressed in the 80s and 90s in New York City, those clothes were a kind of protection and how well you did your makeup were a kind of protection um, you know, the better you did it, the more you might pass, you know. Um, so it, it also had that kind of effect. And then, you know, just living as a woman and all the other changes that come with it, I'm less dependent on, you know, um, presenting and um, performing, um, you know, and I could, I could just, you know, I'm not, I don't remember the first time I wore jeans when I was out, but it, it took a while. Because I needed that skirt, that that icon for people to look at me and then look away and go about their day. Yeah, you, you know, you actually have a very funny line about the early days when you were dressing in women's clothes and going to these underground bars, and you were, you wanted to look like a woman who had accidentally yeah. <laughs> wandered into the wrong bar, <laughs> and so it sounded like you were kind of conservatively dressed. <laughs> Yeah, well, certainly compared to a lot of uh, my fellow cross-dressers, because you know everyone had a different style, and so much of it was so over the top. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, some some executive secretary coming from work. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, we all had this ideal of what's feminine. So you know, when I was a kid watching Superman, you know, that Superman costume was pretty great. But I was looking at Lois Lane. <laughs> I thought that was even better. I thought oh, she had the superpower. And when she had these like business suits with like really padded shoulders and Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um so you transitioned pretty late in life. You were around fifty and we're talking around two thousand fifteen and sixteen. Um what's unique about transitioning at that age? Um, and also about having kind of, you know, lived in this in-between world where you couldn't really be who you were for so much of your life before transitioning to life as a woman. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, being a 50-year-old, it was actually 2014 where I came out to myself. I was I was alone on a solo meditation retreat, actually. And the first thing I said to myself is, uh, you know, when I decided to do this, I, I need to live to 100. I, I, I felt that the universe owed me 50 years as a female living this way. Um, that, that's crazy. But 
it's it's this sense that I wanted more life. Um, and and I think, you know, for me coming out, maybe for anyone coming out, you you take a path of almost maximum safety. You know, if it's safest to be in the closet, then you need to be there. And at a certain point, it becomes safer to come out, at least for me. You know, people people call you brave. I think that's often they say that to other me, like, I wouldn't want to be you. You're brave or you have to be brave. But for me, it was more like um, it, it got to be that to continue life, you know, as a man was even scarier than to transition. Um, well, it, it had gotten that way. It seems from your memoir that every time you made a big change in terms of the transition and in terms of living publicly as a woman, you were nearly on the verge of suicide. I mean, it's like you didn't really have a choice. Like if you wanted to live, you had to make a change. I think so. There's, you know, one of these Tibetan gurus had had said, um, you don't really find out about yourself until you're cornered. Um, but even even more apropos, there's a there was a trans man I heard speaking. It was while I was writing this book, and he said that his transition was a death gift to himself. Um, you know, and I related to that from the very. I'd already written the prologue to this where it's really presented as a death gift, even just to go out cross-dressed for the first time. Um, You know, there's just so much fear and resistance. And and again, unlike today, back then, your life was going to end pretty soon. You know, transsexual people, which was the language used then, uh, did not tend to live very long and um, did not tend to participate and, you know, the things that normally, you know, give life meaning when you think of community or family or career or, I mean, none of those things were open at the time to transsexual people. So it was like looking at the end of life. Having lived through what you've lived through, what do you think the line is between gender as a social construct, as a behavior um, that you kind of socialized into doing? And gender as something that is just kind of uh, deeper. It's not what you're trained to do. It's just an essence that is there and can't be snuffed out, even if the culture wants you to. Right. Yeah, I think gender as a social construct is highly problematic issue for a trans man or a trans woman, as opposed to people identifying as non-binary. I cannot speak for them, and I won't. But... I know that gender is not a social construct because I watched my society try to construct a man out of me for 50 years, and it didn't work. And, you know, there were all the advantages in favor of constructing that man, you know, the hormones and the name and all these data points I mentioned. Um, And what's disappointing to me intellectually, actually, frankly, what's stupid is there is a lack of specificity when we talk about this. Uh, gender roles are certainly a construct. Let's start there. You mm-hmm. know, who does what job and who plays what role and what do they get paid? And that's a construct. But gender identity, that is not constructed. So even when you say, you know, in your introduction about transitioning or a gender transition, um, 
I don't think anyone ever transitioned their gender identity. I certainly never did. I, if, 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 it, if I did, it was to try to become this man. So what, what you have to do, you know, to quote the poet Rilke, you must change your life. Um, I can't change my gender identity. So everything else had to change around it. Um, my driver's license, you know, my name change, my wardrobe, um, you know, etc. Et Everything changed that way, my body, um, in order to align with my gender identity. So, you know, strangely enough, the very word gender transition, you know, carries with it a big misunderstanding. That's the one thing that doesn't transition. I had told you off mic that I love the title of your memoir, which is called This Body I Wore. And you told me you really wanted to change the title. <laughs> so what don't you like about the title and what do you wish it was? What I feared about the title is uh, this trope of born in the wrong body. That can work, especially early on when more people were coming out. You know, you tell someone who can't understand that you're trapped, you know, you're, uh, you know, a man trapped in a woman's body, a woman trapped in a man's body. And a lot of people say, okay, I can understand that. We have a right of, you know, habeas corpus and, yeah, you shouldn't be trapped and that kind of thing. But, you know, for me, my experience was not that way. It was my body that desired this, you know, from the depths of me, I wanted this and it was my body that opened up and felt free, you know, presenting as a woman. And it was my thinking mind that had to go kicking and screaming that was full of fear and terror and protective thoughts and, and so forth. And, I mean, I, I once said to this trans-feminine spectrum group, the support group I was a part of, you know, when I heard yet again, you know, I'm, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. And I just said, you know, maybe we're trans people trapped in trans bodies. So those were some of my thoughts behind this, this body I wore. I was afraid of getting, you know, blowback from, you know, other trans people saying, can we please, you know, be done with this? Mm. But then people loved it, especially cisgender people. They love this title. <laughs> um, and, you know, my, my editor, Jenna Johnson, I, I owe her a... Uh, a debt of gratitude because she patiently waited at the last minute for a week for me to look at other titles, even though we had a pretty good title here. Um, I just couldn't find a better one. Do you feel that now that you are living as a woman and that you are able to find the things out of life that you couldn't find before? Yeah, but those things aren't so... Uh, I don't, know, I don't know how to say it exactly. They, they are special, but they're so ordinary. You know, just living life uh, in your name, in your gender, in your appearance. A lot of those things, yeah, I can find. And a lot of them happen, you know, at unexpected moments. And you just feel right in who you are. But, you know, I didn't want to fall into that cliche that a lot of trans memoirs fall into because I don't believe them. You know, they say, the first thing they say is, you know, we're really okay. We're not okay. <laughs> there's a lot of trouble and, you know, I feel it too. Uh, there's a lot of work to do. There's a long way to go. Um, and the other thing they say is, you know, we're people, we're human. And, you know, if you have to make a case for that, you've already lost it. So, you know, I, 
I didn't know how the last page was going to work out. You know, how am I going to end this thing when I still feel a lot of trouble and chaos and a lot of the people I know do. Um, and yet, um, you know, we're doing what we have to do. Well, Diana, it's really been great to talk with you. I'm really grateful for this interview and grateful to you for being so open in your memoir and in the interview. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Terry. It was delightful to talk to you. Diana Getch is the author of the new memoir, This Body I Wore. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberto Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross. Mm-hmm.